So this morning, um, like I said, we are in week six of this study. And um, I've started off with this a couple times over the last few weeks um, with these sort of just simple phrases about what we're doing. And, and I want to kind of just uh, re, you know, re sort of communicate these to you um, so that they can just be implanted in your heart. You know, when we participate in the church and when we have a devotion to the church, to Christ's church, we do that because it's essential to our spiritual growth and nourishment and maturity. And that is one of the reasons why we are going through this study, this series, so that we can understand and identify what it is about the church that provides the essential nutrients for nourishment and maturity and growth. It is this church, it is Christ's church, that provides the core elements that nothing else can, that is aimed at producing someone who is set apart, who is holy, and wholly devoted to Christ. And that is the main reason why we come and are a part of the church. That is why we participate and are devoted to his body. And so we've been looking at a couple of different things within this series, in this structure that we've kind of created, we've looked at uh, the source of the church, which is Christ, as being a reason why we are to be committed and devoted to the church. We've looked at the substance of the church, and we are in that piece right now, and we're going to be looking at going forward the sacredness of the church and why these, these, um, this structure and these features or should be motivators for everyone to be a part of and committed to and devoted to Christ's church. So this morning, we're going to be in the substance of the church. We've looked at the source of the church in both Matthew chapter 16 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then we've begun to look at the substance of the church. And the substance of the church we've kind of identified as this, sort of the essential content, the important features, and the beneficial qualities and the significance of the church. When we think about the substance, it is that we are to think on these things about what they provide for every Christian. So we looked at in 1 Timothy chapter 3 a couple weeks ago, verse 14, that the Christian must love the church because it is where the truth is supported, protected, and guarded. The Christian must love the church because it is where God's word is publicly declared, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We talked about there was no other institution, no other public assembly, no other establishment or organization that exists for the express purpose of publishing God's word and teaching Christ and the gospel, expounding on it and calling people to a response. And then we looked at last week or two weeks ago, the Christian must love the church because it is where they are sanctified and trained in godliness, 1 Timothy 4 six through ten. And now this morning, we're going to look at this. The Christian must love the church because it is where the believer can experience the assurance of salvation. You can be assured this morning that Christ has saved you. And we can be assured this morning by looking at God's word and telling us how it is that we can be assured. We do not need to waver we do not need to speculate with regards to our salvation. 
But we can look at the word of God and read it and study it and know what Christ says. And from that truth, understand that we are assured in our salvation. So we're going to continue in 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. So Christ's church, this church, is the publisher of the truth. We've talked about that in the past. And it's the publisher of the truth in this way. It's the publisher of the gospel in this way. That it declares the character of God. It declares his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his mercy, his patience. It is the publisher of the truth of the gospel in this way. That it exposes our own rebellion and sin against God. It celebrates Christ's blood shed for us, the atoning of our sin, and the peace that man has with God as it is acquired through faith in Christ. And that we are restored to a holy God. And there's a behavior pattern that continues through that time. As we are settling in on the truth of Christ, it will cause different behavior patterns it will cause a lifestyle change as a response and as the believer is pierced by this truth it produces in the mind and in the heart a profound sense of assurance in the sufficiency of christ for salvation so if you were to break down this this verse 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 10. And you were to assign to it a topic sentence. Anybody remember doing topic sentences in school, right? So you, you, write, a, you write a paragraph, and typically you've got to write a topic sentence or, or a thesis statement, right, that's going to explain or sum up what it is that you're about to uh, more fully uh, lay out. Right? You guys remember doing that, right? Well, if you were to do a topic sentence for this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 11 through 16, it would be this. That devotion to sound doctrine and devotion and a careful attention to sound living are formidable contributions in Christ's work of salvation. That is sort of the topic sentence that we are looking at this morning. And that is what 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16, that's what Paul lays out for the church and for Timothy. So we're going to read that passage in a moment. I want to take a look at Paul's imperatives. You're going to see a lot of verbs in this passage. You're going to see a lot of commands in this passage. And these are some of them, a summary of them. In verse 11, Paul says, you must command and teach, Timothy, specifically the truth and the gospel. In verse 13, he says, devote yourselves or give attention or to bring near to you the scriptures. Then in verse 15, he says, practice, attend to, immerse yourself, wholly absorb. And in verse 16, he says, keep watch, fix your attention, persist, which means to remain, continue, and persevere. These are all jam-packed into four verses. All of these imperatives, all of these action verbs. Paul is calling not only Timothy, but the church to something. He's calling them to be intentional and deliberate about their faith. Essentially, that's what he's doing. 
He's saying, pay attention, pay attention, keep attention, keep watch, practice, devote, immerse, persist, command, teach. You start to get a picture here of what Paul is trying to communicate to not only Timothy, but the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, 11 through 16. We're going to see three things here. We're going to see Paul's focus on devotion to sound doctrine or teaching, Paul's demonstration of a sound life, and his, his, um, his approach to how these work with regards to solidifying our salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 11 through 16. Paul says this, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Interesting. Interesting way Paul ends that passage. So let's take it here. In verse 11, this is what Paul is focusing on. Paul focuses on, first and foremost, devotion to sound doctrine or sound teaching or sound truth. The authoritative announcing and explaining of the gospel of Christ is essential for the spiritual growth of every church. We cannot grow if we don't continually hear the truth. If we're not continually uh, putting our minds to the truth of the gospel of Christ, the church cannot grow. But it grows when it is immersed in the truth of God's word. Paul uses this word command as sort of an authoritative, um, authoritative word here. He uses this word command because he's telling Timothy, when you, when you preach, when you share the word of God, when you, when you get up there and when you discharge your duties of teaching and explaining and declaring the truth about Christ, he's, you are to do it with confidence and authority. You are to represent me and my authority because ultimately Timothy was Paul's apostolic representative. And so everything that Paul was telling Timothy and teaching Timothy to do, Timothy was to do the same with the church. It was as if Paul was pastoring the church through Timothy. So he says, command these things and teach them. In other words, impart instruction, explain expound and expound the things of God. In other words, engage in, and I know this is a really, I don't know, a word that many people in church don't like to hear anymore, but explain and expound and, and be, um, be really intentional about theology, the study of God. That is something I feel like is being lost in our churches, that there's no rigorous attention to studying God. 
to know God. That everything is just simply about gathering and feeling. And I feel, trust me, I felt a tremendous amount of unworthiness this morning before God. But our feelings cannot determine what we believe about God. The truth of God's word shall always determine what we believe about God. So it is essential for the church to engage in theology, thinking and studying and knowing God. Sorry. I'll give it a couple more. So Paul is saying, I want you to instruct them. I want you to instruct them in the words of God. So in other words, what we think about God and not only that, instruct them in conduct. Because what we think about God and Christ will determine how we live. Whether you're a Christian or not, what you think about God determines how you live. Doesn't matter if you believe or not. So what is it that Timothy is supposed to share? He refers to it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says this, be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. In other words, the words of the faith is the testimony of Christ. The sound doctrine is the explaining of the dynamics of the gospel. He also says it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 and 3. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So in other words, Timothy, you are to preach the things and teach the things and extol the excellencies of Christ in agreement with the words that he has given us. You are not free to make up your own style. You are not free to express your own opinion. You are not free to, to, to uh, interpret the scriptures any way you want you are to look at the word of God and you are to look at the words of Christ and you are to expound and explain them simply so that people can understand. Verse 12, he moves on to a sound life. He says this, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So as Timothy becomes saturated, and I would say this for us as well, even though Paul's primary audience is Timothy, there is this sense that everything, the principles that Paul is laying out for Timothy, that the church is supposed to latch onto and to glean from. So for Timothy, as he's saturated in the knowledge of Christ, it is to produce a life in him that is to be modeled and followed. And it is true for us that as we are saturated in the truth of Christ, that it provides a model. It produces a model, a life that others can follow, both in the church and outside. You don't understand the model of your life that's being produced through your desire for God's truth to those outside the church. Those can look at your life and make a determination about God based on how you live. 
That is a huge responsibility that we all have as Christians. How we conduct our lives is crucial in determining how other people view Christ. That's what Paul is saying. As you are saturated with the truth, let it be that your life is completely transformed by it so that the model that is produced is one to be worthy of following. Yeah. <laughs> we don't get off easy here. We have a tremendous responsibility before God. Essentially, Timothy's words he used, his visible life, the observable life, his, his, his service to the church, his trust in Christ, his commitment to refrain from a lifestyle of sin would be the natural byproduct of a life that has encountered the stunning grace and immeasurable mercy of the gospel. It is these virtues that essentially will validate his authority in the church. He was to provide a model not only for people outside, but for people in the church that he was leading. We come back to verse 13. Devotion, Paul comes back to this idea of devotion to sound doctrine. So he comes and says, you should be devoted to command to teach these things. This is what it's going to do in your life. Now he comes back and gives more clarity to this idea of devotion to sound doctrine. Look what he says here in verse 13. He says, until I come, he's planning to come back, right? Until I come again, I'm not there now. And that's why I'm writing to you this letter so that you can instruct and, and, and you can teach and you can model what Christian living is for the church. He says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Until I return, do these things. Martin Luther once said that there is never a reason for the church to gather apart from the preaching of the word of God. So it is that when we come together and we gather together, we hear the words of Christ explained and declared and that we are to be devoted to these things. Look what he says. He says, you are to be devoted to these things until I come. And the church really, this, here's the idea, that the church shall experience a nearness to the word of God. And the word of God imparts knowledge and provokes a response. That's essentially what Paul is trying to get at here. So when we come together, we are to be devoted to what? The public reading of the scriptures is what we did today. The public reading of the scriptures, exhortation and teaching. I'm going to share with you briefly what these mean. This idea of devotion, guys, is, is to bring near, right? Is to, is to turn one's mind to, is to be attentive to, is to be essentially in close proximity to. It's as if a, a, sh a, a, a ship is being lured to the shore. It, it's, the, it's the process of a ship coming to shore. And when that ship comes to shore, it, it meets the shore. There's such a close proximity that the, that the ship is literally sitting on the shore. It's kind of the same thing with the church and the word of God. This is what Paul is saying. It's like, be devoted to, come near to, turn your mind to 
the public reading of the word. And this idea of meeting or reading, simply that. In the scriptures it says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. But in the original it just says to the reading. The idea is, is that the implication is that it was going to be public and it was going to be reading God's word. So embedded in this corporate gathering is the reading of the scriptures. And for the purpose of coming to an understanding, a depth and a breadth of the knowledge of the cross. It is to comprehend in some way the manner of God's profound godness. It is to come face to face with the reality of the virtues of the character of God. It is to see and understand his holiness and his perfection. It is to see his purity and his kindness. It is to see his patience and understand these things in a corporate way. It's to be done so that all can see and all can hear. It is presented so that it is in full view of everyone present. This term reading is always designated for simply the public reading of God's word. It's found here in Acts chapter 13, 15. Paul, when he goes to the synagogue in Antioch, he says this. Now Paul, Luke, Luke records this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from uh, Paphos and come to Perga in uh, Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and he began to preach the gospel. Listen to this. I just came across this today. Paul preaches about Christ in the synagogue. And look at what it says in verse 42. As they went out, listen to this, all the Jews coming out of the synagogue, hearing the gospel for the very first time, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Wow. They longed for truth. They understood that Christ had come and was the perfect fulfillment of what the prophets and the law had prophesied long ago. And when they were hearing this truth for the very first time, what was their response? They pleaded, can we have more? Is that how we are in the church today? Do we long to know Christ in more profound ways? Paul says, you also must exhort. The Greek term for this is paraklesis. You may recognize this word. Jesus uses the term paraclete to refer to the Holy Spirit as the comforter, as the one who draws near, as the one who comes and offers comfort. 
This idea of exhortation is this sense of calling near, of summoning, of persuasive discourse. It's so that when the word of God is declared, there's also this exhortation where not only are you hearing, but the word of God is to provoke a response in the listener. It is so that the listener would hear, not simply passively, but they would hear, and through the pleading of the word, it would urge the listener to respond in maybe a greater commitment to Christ. And so when the word is declared, it's not just thrown out there just for anyone to hear or to ponder, but it is to promote a response in the listener. There is a pleading going on, an urging going on. There is this sense that, that the listener would be persuaded by the truth to live differently in light of the gospel. Listen to what 2 Kings records uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23, Old Testament, verses 1 to 3. We read about Josiah, King Josiah in, in Jerusalem. And King Josiah came after two other kings, King Ammon and King Manasseh. And these two kings were wicked kings. They drew the people of God away from God. They had set up altars and places of sacrifice to foreign gods. And they had caused the, the, the people of Israel to turn their back on God, to essentially cheat on him spiritually. They went after other gods. And Josiah comes in, and he begins to rebuild and refurnish the temple. And during this time, they discover the law of God. They discover the word of God. They discover this book. And Hilkiah, the high priest, uh, comes to Josiah and says, King Josiah, we have, we have found the book of the law. Uh, think about this. This is the, 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 the Jewish people, the, the Israelites, with such rich tradition. You think about the stories, the ones that we heard about with Moses, the stories of God's deliverance and God's faithfulness and God's covenant. They had this rich history recorded for them for them to access at any point to bring them comfort and care. And they had abandoned it. And Josiah finds it. And he reads it. In verse 23, verse, or chapter 23, verse 1, it says this, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, they all came to the king, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, the temple, and with all of the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes and with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. What do we see here? A picture of what God's word produces in the life of its believers. 
It is God's word that is sent out and the covenants and the truths and, and the principles and the precepts. It is declared to the people. And what does it do? It causes change. It causes lives to be transformed. It, sound teaching and sound doctrine lead to sound living. Essentially is what Paul is saying. Reading the scriptures draws the church back to the gospel. Reading recalls people back to their God. Reading invokes a response. Reading draws the church into the truth of Christ. It incites repentance. It incites confession. It incites the confession and repentance of sin that's initiated by the mercy and the grace of Christ. That's what you see in Josiah's day, and that is what you are to see today in the life of the church. What did they do? They got rid of all of the high places, all the places of worship, all the objects of idolatry. They removed all of it from the temple, all of it from the lands. They, they, they kicked out all of the priests that were sacrificing and worshiping to false gods. And they returned and repented of their sin to the true and living God. And it is no different for us today as we hear the word of God. And this instruction is to be taught. It is to be expounded upon. It is to be explained. And it is to be sound in that it is to be accurate. Accurately communicating with regards to the sense and the understanding of the text. So that we are not free to make up whatever we want about what the text says. But we are to teach it and hear it in accord with what God had originally designed it to communicate. And the church shall never exhaust its desire to hear what God has to say. There shall never come a time where these truths become stale or when the gospel becomes boring or when there's never a time when we will render God's principles as lifeless or dull, Christ's commands as mundane or uninspiring. And so here we see in verse 15, both a devotion and demonstration. Back to 1 Timothy. Paul says, in verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. In other words, there's a deliberate attention and appropriate action that must take place in the instruction of God's word because it will produce sound and fruitful living for others to observe. 
In a sense, Paul is just reaffirming what he said in verse 7 when he says, you are to be trained in godliness. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. There's this idea that there's a work involved. That there's, that there's, there's this idea that, that, that we're not passive in this process, but that it, it, it takes a sense of um, vigorous and rigorous regimented commitment to see a sound life produce through sound teaching. He says, practice these things. In other words, meditate on them or allow them to revolve in your mind. Attend to them carefully. We are continually to be meditating, not emptying our mind, but filling our mind with the truth of God's word. That's what he's saying. Immerse yourself in them. Be in them. Literally, be in them. Wholly absorbed, self-dedicated to these things. And finally, this is the reason. Verse 16, he says this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Interesting way of putting it, because I know that it is in Christ alone I am saved. It is in Christ alone, by faith alone, that I am saved. There is nothing in and of myself that can do this. There is nothing in and of yourself that you can do anything to merit Christ's salvation for you. But Paul does say here that attention to these things will in some way save yourself and save your hearers. Interesting. To put it this way, this was a hard verse for me to try to communicate to you guys because I don't want you to come out of this thinking I have to do something in order to assure my salvation. That, that I'm not saved unless I am doing all of these things. Or that Christ's work of salvation is dependent on me participating in these things. Because that will just lead to works-based, merit-based assurance. And that's not what Paul is saying here. But for every believer, there is this confident assurance of salvation as Christ's work, right? There's this confident assurance of, of salvation that Christ has worked in us through his work, but it's, it's solidified by a devotion to sound biblical truth. And it's solidified by the producing of the fruit of sound and upright living. Make no mistake, the living God is the Savior of all people. Paul says this in verse 9. No question. In the ministry of the gospel is the effective means by which we are saved. No question. But yet, here's, here's what we have to understand, you guys. That even, even with this truth, at the same time, it is Christ's work of salvation that is exemplified. It's demonstrated in believers through a devotion to the word of Christ and a consistent demonstration of sound living. It is so important to understand this, that the notion, this notion that we must grasp this morning is that we shall receive no glory for our own salvation. But God alone is jealous for his glory. In other words, he doesn't share it with anyone. 
God alone and Christ alone and his glory alone is the purpose and the reason for our salvation. But we have to also understand this. Even though we are not due any credit for what God has done in us, here's the cool part. That God somehow, he's pleased to grant assurance to us in what he's doing through our own spiritual labor. Think about this, that even though God alone is responsible and God takes all the credit and God does not share his glory and his ability to save you and me, it pleases God that he would in some way grant us assurance through our own spiritual work through our own labor, that if we have tasted the mercy of Christ through the forgiveness of our sin and as we hear the gospel, that he would somehow, some way, assure us through our devotion to his teaching and to the devotion to sound living that God would solidify salvation in us through that assurance in what we do for him. And so that is how we are to kind of, I think, see this passage, that it is not our works that lead to it, but God uses our labor to assure us of it, if that makes sense. That is such a wonderful, beautiful concept in the gospel. It is so wonderful. And consequently, if there is a commitment to unbiblical, unsound doctrine, that promotes a different or insufficient Christ and a perverted gospel, there lies the potential for adverse and even disastrous effects for those who believe that. That is why Paul said, your attention to sound teaching, you being accurate in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to your hearers will have very beneficial results. And if you stray from this, if you stray from this gospel and you teach a different gospel, if you teach a different Christ, essentially what Paul is saying is, is your hearers can't be saved by hearing about a different Jesus. A different gospel cannot save you. So that is why it is so critical to test everything you hear. You test me. You test everything. John said, you test all things. You test the spirit of everything you hear. You don't take anything for granted, including me. You go to the scriptures and say, is what Chad said really true? I'm going to find out for myself so that I'm held accountable for what I give you every morning. But essentially, that's what Paul is saying. Let me give you an example. If you hear a teaching that says, Christ died so you can be rich, that is a different gospel. If you hear that Christ died so that you can simply be always healthy and never sick, that's a different gospel. If you hear that someone teaches you that Christ died in order to restore your dominion over the earth, I'm sorry, but that's a different gospel. 
Christ came, bled, and died so that your sin can be forgiven and atoned for through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his beautiful resurrection, defeating not only sin, but the wages of sin, which is death. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he has restored you as a son and a daughter of God into the glory and the honor that is only due Christ. He has restored you in your soul. He has restored you in your mind. He has restored you in every faculty that is in your existence. He has restored you to wholeness and health spiritually. You no longer are bound by sin. You no longer are bound by uh, the effects of sin. You are no longer bound by the enemy. You are no longer bound, but you do truly as Deb said, have victory in Christ because of the gospel. And that is what is the true gospel. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. I bring to you a first importance that Christ died for the forgiveness of sin. He was died, he died, he was buried and raised. And so Paul is saying, if you teach any different gospel, you are endangering the spiritual eternity of your hearers because they will believe in a different Christ which cannot save them. So embedded in the truth of the gospel is confession and repentance and turning to Christ and finding restoration for your soul, and finding peace for your soul, that you are now, there's nothing separating you from him, and that you are free, and that you are granted eternal life with him. So why must we love the church? We must love the church because it is where we hear the word of Christ publicly read and taught, provoking a response and a commitment to Christ. In light of the awareness of our sin and the merciful forgiveness of Christ. We must love the church because a person's devotion to it reflects one who is devoted to the hard work of growth through sound doctrine, giving rise to sound living as evidence of Christ's work of salvation. And that is why we love the church. That is why we're committed. That is why we're devoted to the body of Christ. It is where we can find full peace and assurance in Christ's saving work on our behalf. That's amazing. I want to know every day. I want to know without, with, without a shadow of a doubt, with complete confidence and total assurance that Christ has indeed saved me and has rescued me and delivered me. There is nothing that brings me more peace than that. And the only way I find that is being right here. Right here with you sharing, hearing, and loving God in Christ.
Amen. All right. Let's stand. stand.